We will read this morning from uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 46, and we will be reading verses 1 to 7. Psalm 46, beginning at verse 1. God, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to take just a minute to introduce our speaker uh, today. Pastor Jim uh, Lincoln uh, served here uh, as a family life pastor at Bethany Church from 1990 to 2000. And after that, he went out from here uh, with uh, some of you who actually have gone and have come back to Bethany uh, to plant a Hope Fellowship, which wrapped up ministry as Jim retired about a year and a half ago or so. So we're grateful to have him today as he opens Psalm 46. Would you uh, welcome him up? All right, please take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 46, and uh, while you're doing that, let me thank you for asking me to preach this morning, to walk in a a building where you're uh, loved and uh, treated with uh, grace and mercy is a delight. Uh, The Lord is in this place and in this fellowship, and it's great to to be here. We're so grateful, my wife and I, for the uh, mercy and generosity that Bethany uh, has uh, uh, shown to us over the years, and just glad to be uh, welcomed back. Um, Dr. Stan used to say, Stan Anderson used to be an elder here, and he used to say to take the pressure off ministers, he used to say, uh, he said, I can sit through uh, an hour, any hour, for a few good moments. <laughs> so uh, we got a little rehearsal in the first uh, service this morning. Maybe we can have a, a few good mo- uh, moments. Debbie sends her greetings. She's from Texas, where she's tending to her aging parents. Uh, The beautiful woman I've been hugging is not my wife. It's my daughter. (laughs) You've asked about that. My daughter, Christy, who's with us this morning. All right. um, This morning, I want us to linger on the first five verses of Psalm 46. They have uh, been a great source of encouragement to me and calmed my heart. They've made my uh, troubles lighter. And it's kind of a theme I want you to to hear about. Uh, The psalm is a banquet table. And and I hope you would see it this way. And if you'll pull your chairs up to it, if you'll pull your chairs up to this banquet table and eat freely, I'm confident it will do the same for you uh, as it has done for me. So uh, it is the word of the Lord. And as we said, we do give thanks to God for it. Let me ask his blessing So bow with me for a moment before we look at this banquet table. 
Father, the hymn writer said, through many dangers and toils and snares, we've already come. He acknowledges that it's grace. His grace has brought us safe thus far, and it is grace that will lead us home. So open our eyes that we might see glimpses of truth you have for me. Place in our hands the wonderful key that can unclasp and set us free by your truth and promise. Set our hearts free. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of you uh, may know it by way of the musical that's become uh, popular in the last 20 years, uh, the, the novel, Victor Hugo's novel, uh, Les Miserables. I mean, it's a massive book. I want to say 1,600 pages, and that piece, that piece on, um, on a couple of the wars is, is very extensive. But the book, uh, Les Miserables, recounts the embattled life of a man named Jean Valjean. He was born into absolutely wretched poverty that plagued France in the 19th century. And after losing both of his parents, he moved in with his older sister. She, too, was poor, and she had seven children uh, and didn't really offer much but uh, her place and her love and friendship. At age 25, he took a job pruning trees, but he was paid so little, his contribution to the family barely helped them avoid starvation. One night on his way home from work, he sees a loaf of bread uh, in a bakery window. Overtaking by, taken by what that loaf of bread could mean for his family, he breaks the glass and he steals the bread. Okay. Well, of course, he's almost immediately caught in the act. The owner was there. And then he was uh, rapidly sentenced to five years in prison for stealing the loaf of bread. Once entering the prison, a guard came over and he fastened an iron collar around his neck. He hammered two-inch uh, rivet through the end clasp of the collar and attached uh, that to a heavy chain. And then he threw Valjean into a dark prison cell, and it was dark. He said he didn't see the sun, couldn't see a, a summer day, a spring day dawning. All only light he saw was a some coming from the barred uh, uh, window above. Years of uh, constant abuse simply crushed his soul. He became dead and numb to life. Uh, listen to the way Hugo describes his life. Hugo says it this way. If a grain of corn, a grain of corn under a millstone had thoughts, those would be the same as Valjean's. Three times he was so desperate, miserable, he tried to escape. So the five, to add to the five years, they added 14 more years, and now 19 years in prison. On his rela uh, release, he was consumed by vengeance and an irrevocable vow to inflict as much pain and revenge on the world that had inflicted so much uh, unjust pain on him. And within hours of his release, he sees this little boy flipping a coin. He goes over and bullies that boy, and he steals his money and pleads with himself for doing so. Um, for days, being an ex-con, he has these papers that identify him as an ex-con. No one would open their door for him and let him in, so he's out in the cold, rainy days and nights. Then uh, one person does. 
It's an old priest, Reverend Muriel. When Valjean first stood in the doorway, the look in his eyes was so fierce that the priest's maidservant trembled. Her mouth dropped open. By the firelight in the room, he looked hideous and sinister with rage and no expectation of help. Valjean says to the priest, look, I'm an ex-con, 19 years in prison, out for four days, I just walked 35 miles, no one's going to take me in or has taken me in. I slept outside, but it's raining tonight. The local jailer wouldn't even let me in. I broke into the kennel, but the dogs there bit and chased me away. I'm tired and hungry. Again, with no expectation, he says, would you let me stay the night? The bishop said to his maidservant, set another place setting at the table with our best silverware, and also go upstairs and put some clean sheets on the spare bed. Well, Valjean was dumbstruck by this. He hadn't slept in a bed 19 years. Okay, clean sheets. So he says, you're really going to let a dangerous ex-con like me stay in your house, eat at your table, sleep in your bed? The priest said to him this, this is not my house. This belongs to Christ. After dinner, Valjean slept in the guest bedroom. Around 2 a.m., he woke up, picked up his knapsack, quietly slipped downstairs where he had identified earlier while taking dinner, identified the silverware cabinet. He had plans. He filled his sack, stole the priest's silverware, silverware, every last piece, and ran away into the night. He had just vandalized another's love and grace. Although trying to suppress it, he knew that. So to his long list of troubles, he now added one more, the trouble of his sin against grace, his sin against love. Hold on to that. Psalm 46 uses the word troubles to describe much along the path of Christian discipleship that God ordains for us. The word literally means to squeeze. The idea is a, uh, an olive being pressed between two sides of the olive press. The psalm tells us something about God, what he's up to in our troubles, and it offers a hopeful outcome. It answered many tears of my daughter that my daughter Rebecca cried out, offered up to God in her troubles. So I'll organize the passage around three headings. First is this, troubles are a good part, beloved, of God's program for any real follower of Christ. It's part of, his, part of God's good program for any real follower of Jesus. Second, the weight, and this is significant here to what he says, what I want to say, the weight of God's glory, it transcends, it's an important word, it transcends our troubles. It does not exempt us from them. But it has divine power to transcend, even redeem them. Okay. And third this morning, um, how do we lay hold of this? Faith. Faith in God's presence and in his eternal glory lightens our troubles. Okay. It can lighten. Okay. Troubles are a good part of discipleship. The eternal weight of God's glory transcends them. Placing your faith in the weight of God's glory will lighten your troubles for your joy, your benefit, and for God's glory. Okay. All right, first, 
Troubles are a good part of God's program for any serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what God doesn't promise. Notice this. There are some churches that promise this. God doesn't. Look at what God doesn't promise. He doesn't promise that God will exempt us or spare us from troubles. Instead, he promises to be a very present help where with us in trouble. That preposition is important. Or in the place where your life is being squeezed or where you're being pressed in from every side. Harshly so, right? Now, that's not to say that God doesn't spare us from all kinds of troubles, right? Uh, mostly in my life, that's what he does all the time. Uh, he does so more than we know it. I think of the times I've foolishly driven up Highway 26 on my way to Mount Hood to ski uh, on a road covered with ice. God has been merciful to me. I was foolish and have been foolish. He's been merciful and good. Spared me lots of trouble. By his mercy, he spared me more troubles of my own making than I'll ever know in this life. But notice here that God doesn't promise that if you just exercise the right kind of faith, if I can just give you these tools, you exercise the right kind of faith, apply the right kind of prayer technique, focus your mind on positive things. That's kind of the dominant theme in many pulpits. Focus your mind on positive things, then you can escape trouble. The illustrated metaphors he uses aren't positive. They're intimidating. Well, that's a sub-Christian message, beloved, and in the end it will rob you of the Christ-like nobility that he has in mind for his disciples. And those that are preaching such things, such things are doing just that. They're stealing away from you the nobility Christ has in mind for you and is working out, fashioning in your heart and soul. The psalm makes me think of David's troubles, rejected both by his father and mother. You can read that in Psalm 27.10. Samuel tells Jesse, his dad, to bring all the sons before him. He wants to bless them. Uh, he wants to anoint one of them. Jesse, le Jesse leaves David home. He was a son, but he got overlooked, right? For years, he wandered as a fugitive from Saul's murderous rage, unjustly so. In family life, one of David's sons raped his only daughter, David's only daughter, Tamar. Later, another son murdered the offending son, his son Absalom conspired with others to overthrow his father's kingdom and drove David out of Jerusalem and did things uh, unspeakably wicked that we can't mention. So, do you have family troubles? All right. Then there were the troubles of his sins against Uriah, murder, wickedness, adultery, deceit, and more cover-up. David can speak with some experience about troubles, both from without and troubles from within his soul, his own soul, right? They all served as a part of his discipleship as a believer. So he once wrote this, he says, before I was afflicted, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I yield, or now I obey your words. The affliction, the troubles, had a redemptive purpose. They served as warning signs and created a hunger and thirst in his heart for God and for the righteousness of God. Beloved, God calls our faith to be big enough to account for the miracles in the Christian life, the miracles of, the, of Jesus, the apostles, and Peter, I'm thinking of. And also, he calls us, our faith, to be big enough to include the brutal execution of John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said was the greatest man born of woman, as I recall. Both miracles and brutal execution were judged as acts of faith. 
I'm sure that you're familiar with Paul's troubles, flogging, stonings, beatings, being among with rods, being among them, shipwreck, wandering around. How can we say that we're followers of Jesus and his apostles and expect God to exempt us from troubles? Didn't Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me? In this world, you'll have troubles, tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. But do they have a good purpose? Well, yes, since they're being used to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, who suffered terrible troubles. That's a good purpose, is it not? I mean, would you be better off if you were conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Well, I would, yes. Can you imagine a young Navy SEAL cadet saying to his, uh, his CO, his officer, commanding officer, saying to him, Sir, I want to be a Navy SEAL, but I don't want to experience any serious suffering. Okay? I don't want any tribulation. I mean, I've read where, I think it's probably against the law now, but I've read where Navy SEALs volunteer for waterboarding to come within an inch of their lives. They want to know that before they ever experience it on the field. We smiled, you laughed, you giggled a little bit because you know that for a Navy SEAL to request a pass from serious trouble is a contradiction of what? The definition of a Navy SEAL, right? How much more than of a contradiction is of those who follow Jesus Christ to suggest such an absurd thing? But we want our ears tickled today. And there are a lot of people that, that like to hear that. Peter says our troubles, they are good things. Not in and of themselves necessarily, but God makes good out of them. Peter says that our troubles can prove that our faith is real, necessary. The way true gold is refined and made pure by removing the dross from what is pure through the fire, the troubles of the kiln. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that in our troubles, God gives us comfort, his comfort, so that we can comfort others. Here's the goal. So that we can comfort others with the comfort we receive from God. This is called incarnational living. Jesus left the perfection of heaven to enter into our world to bring the comfort of the gospel. Is this amazing? He calls us to do the same, okay, to give comfort with the comfort we've received from God. Through our troubles, God teaches us empathy, compassion for those who endure heartbreaking troubles. The word compassion in Latin, co uh, uh, passion means to suffer, suffer with. How is compassion possible if we are exempt or immune from suffering, right? Less than a year ago, I knew something of the sufferings of those who lost a child, yet nothing like what I now know after losing one myself. My empathy and compassion have grown exponentially. It's a different level. Becoming conformed to the image of Jesus, uh, wanting to know, as Paul said, the, fellow, the, the, uh, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection, both, right? Becoming conformed to the image of Jesus is at the same time a good and a heartbreaking thing. If your heart never gets broken, I mean, you may better ask, am I on the right path here? But some say, no. They say, if you just ask it, you just wish it, God will exempt you from trouble. It's in John 15, 7 and 8. I have to be careful here. I'll preach an hour sermon on this passage. <clears throat> Look. So some read Jesus' ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you as unconditional and unqualified. They pull it out of its context. All major errors in reading ancient texts and legal texts are the most important errors are contextual errors when you take a passage out of its context. 
They say that the word whatever by definition means unconditional or unqualified. It can mean that, but not necessarily. Certainly not here. It doesn't mean that because Jesus stated the conditions uh, with clarity and qualifications at the beginning of 7 and in 8. He said, if you abide in me. Does he not? Is this not a condition? If you abide in me. And what's the next condition? If my words abide in you. Then he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Then look at the qualification in verse 8. By this, asking this way, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear fruit and so prove to, me by, to be my disciples. And we need this to have it validated. So before we ask whatever we can imagine, whatever dream wish, you know, before we ask for that next Ferrari, right? And so, well, God said, God said, ask whatever you wish. I wish it, right? That's consistent. That's coherent, isn't it? With what? I don't know. Okay. Before we ask whatever we can imagine, we are to ask this. Will this request arise out of our, my fellowship with Jesus? Right? Is it coming from his words? Right? Will my father be glorified by my request? Right? Will it bear much fruit? So we, then we can say, Father, this is how we ask the, the request. Father, grant me my wish only if it will bear good fruit. And withhold what will not. It's my daughter's prayer at the end. Withhold what will not produce good fruit. Grant, please, Lord, grant what will prove me and validate me to be one of your true disciples. Grant not that which would make it hypocritical. Grant not that which would make it ring true. His conditions and qualifies are explicitly at work in John 15, 7. So it would be unchristian to ask that we be exempt from troubles. And here's what David says they're like. Don't minimize them. Don't say, oh, that's not, that's not a big deal. Look at someone else's trouble. Don't, let's not minimize the trouble. David says, look in the text. He says they can be intimidating like a mountain uh, slipping into the heart of the sea, like a 10, like a 10, 11,000 foot mountain. What would you think if Mount Shasta just got up and slipped and fell into the sea? You think that wouldn't create a little chaos? You think a little virus going around does that would create some, some chaos. Troubles also are intimidating. They can roar and crash over us. Be interesting to get your take on that psalm we read about um, your ways will crash over me. We should take some time on that and ask that, okay? Look, troubles can roar and crash over us the way a 128-foot tsunami wave crashed over Japan in 2011. That's intimidating. That's a big deal. Okay, that's serious business, right? They can quake our troubles if they press in, frighten and boast of the sovereignty the way Mount Vesuvius erupted over Pompeii. I think David means for us to take these things both literally and figuratively. The loss of a loved one, a dream wish, a broken relationship, a job, a heartbreaking disappointment, a bankruptcy, right? Your health, Health of your spouse, child, can be intimidating, all right? Intimidating and mountainous or like a tsunami. Don't minimize the, don't minimize the trouble to get out to, to make it work for you or someone else, all right? They are a part of life lived east of Eden, and God uses them for his good purposes that are often beyond our capacity to figure out. So troubles are part of, of the good plan of discipleship. 
But second, life as a believer is not just all troubles. It's not all troubles. Look again at good, uh, verse 1. God is our refuge, he says, and our strength, a very present help in trouble. So here it is. Here's how David is saying to do it. The weight of God's glory can transcend our troubles, not exempt us from them, but transcend them. Uh, the metaphors David uses are big deals, tsunamis, uh, volcanoes, earthquakes, mountains falling into the, to the sea. They just love to boast of their sovereignty and power. When they hit you, they just love to, they don't say it in these words, they just get you. They love to claim and boast of their sovereignty and power, but beloved, they only have the power to intimidate us Therefore, we will not fear. They only have the power to intimidate us if we reject the dazzling power and weight of God's present eternal glory. That's what steals their power. That's why I'm big on loving the Lord both with your mind and your heart. Because your heart can't turn to what the mind doesn't know. And you're left helpless. You don't know. Because it will try to claim its sovereignty, the trouble will. And the reason why uh, it's, uh, it's limited and why God's, the way of his glory transcends our troubles is because the reality of God's unassailable, beloved, and irrevocable presence towers over our troubles beyond anything you could ever imagine or think. God is that big. His eternal glory is dazzling and is just absolutely breathtaking. Think of ancient scales with two pans on either side. Put this picture in your head, uh, your noodle. Uh, Two pans on either side with a fulcrum in between. When troubles stack up on one side of the scale, they weigh it down with their claim and intimidation. What will happen if you don't put something weightier on the other side? What's going to happen? You're going down, right, with the trouble. You become crushed under the weight of the trouble. So here's what I think David's doing. He's reminding us that God's impregnable and eternal glory present with us. Eternal weight of glory. Eternal, eternity doesn't begin when you die and go to heaven. It doesn't have a beginning in the name. It's eternal. It's available right now. The eternal, the eternal weight of God's presence and glory is with us and it transcends our troubles. Here's how, this is key, here's how. By making them lighter by comparison and only by comparison. You don't have the comparison. Those mountains and tsunamis are uh, threatening events. Okay, but by comparison, his glory makes it lighter. Standing alone, they're not light. All right. But compared to the eternal weight of his glory, they do become lighter. When compared to the eternal weight of God's glorious presence with us, our troubles, beloved, amount to that which is less than a piece of lint in your pocket. And that's not a, um, that's being generous to the lint, if you think about God. But you can only say that if you know something about the weight of God's glory, the glory of the Lord, kavod, the heaviness of God. Ichabod, Ichavod, negation kavod, the glory of God has departed. That's his name. The weight of God's glory has departed. 
Has it departed from your soul, your life? Don't let that happen. Don't, don't give in to that. But you have to have something there to compare it with. So look, perceived standing alone, the troubles are mountainous, but juxtaposed next to God and his presence with you, they are evaporating. They do evaporate. They can't stand it. They can't man. You think they can compete with God? Are you kidding me? They evaporate. The more you know of and the more you prize and praise and honor and adore the glory of God, the lighter, these are things you do with your heart, the lighter the troubles become. Look how the psalms, uh, psalmist uh, does it. You face terrible troubles, troubles that by themselves would crush you. Yet look at the other reality that has been promised to you. God's your refuge. Uh, he is a place of safety and welcome. God is uh, a place to run to in trouble. God is your strength. He is strong, stronger than anything you can ever think or imagine. He is God Almighty at the end of verse 7, the Lord of hosts. When you put that on the other side of the scale, troubles start to lighten up in comparison, right? Begin to lighten in their significance. Their claim of sovereignty and significance begins to weaken. So Elijah's servant wakes up one morning, he looks out at the hills above, and cover all around the hills above is the full complement of the Syrian army. They're decked out in their armor, their chariots, their weaponry. I mean, it's a massive army. And there they are, they're going to use all that force against two people, an old prophet, Elijah, and his, his manservant, slave. And Elijah looks at it, and what happens? He's terrified, he's intimidated by it. Why not? You would be too. Runs in and he tells Elisha, he says, you know, he cried, My, man, come out here. <laughs> you got to see this, this army that's coming against us. You know, we're going to need some help. Right? So uh, what Elisha does, Elisha's really not that interested in all of them. So who does Elisha go? The, the scale is going like this right now. So what does Elijah do? Elijah begins to pray to the Lord God of hosts. And any of you remember what he said? Ask God to do for Elijah, uh, his servant. He, he said to him, he said this. He said, Lord, uh, open the eyes of my servants, mind and heart, so he might know in his noodle, that he might know that those who are for us are more than those who are against us, right? See what he's doing, right? The threat faded. The Syrian army at one time looked so, so uh, intimidating, so powerful now, began to look like tiny toy soldiers in a kid's toy box. Why? Because he went out there and the Lord God of hosts uh, took that veil that separates the heavens from the earth and he pulled it back and the heavens were filled with the heavenly hosts of God, God's army, okay? Uh, chariots of fire. That's how we know there's animals in heaven. They had to have horses pull us. Chariots of fire, okay? Chariots of fire. Those Anglicans are right to have that one day a year. They pray for your pets, right? All right. Chariots of fire, all right? Isn't it good I got to practice in the first time? This is much better. This is much better. Chariots of fire, you know? And uh, it dwarfed. It just absolutely dwarfed, you know, the, uh, the Syrian army. David's troubles of fear of being abandoned 
They plagued him often by God, tried to intimidate him, tried to bring him to despair, take him down. But he countered with the weight of the glory of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Am I, am I feeling abandoned and alone? Then he says, but here's the truth. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I descend down, make my bed down in Sheol, they're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn back in the east, Sun comes up, right? Rise on the wings of the dawn. If I settle on the far side of the sea when the sun goes down on the west, out there in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, if I, uh, there you are. I can't escape your presence. There you are. And here's what he says God does. He says, there you are to, I just got to get back here, to lead me and to hold me fast. When have you wanted God's direction? When have you wanted him to clasp his strong arms around you and hold you fast? When I was a kid, they used to, the preachers used the presence of God to terrify. <laughs> they say, you can't go anywhere, man. He's going to catch you, right? Uh, and that's truth in that. Accountability is truth in that. But this is also true, right, to hold you fast. As he considers God's glorious promise to be present, a very present help in trouble, he intimidating the grandiose claims of the abandonment the trouble begins to become porous, airy, light, thinner. Thinner. He's, com- he's comparing it to the, the eternal weight of the glory of God, right? Rebecca uh, wrote in her journal that, quote, when morning comes, God will be there when morning comes, implies that a season of darkness, the struggle with darkness is ordained for us so that we can behold and anticipate the dazzling light of God's glory and see it in contrast to this heavy darkness that has come upon us, right? Since God is a very present help in trouble, then you can get through the night, they that wait upon the Lord, right? You have to wait, but it's on him and the weight of his glory that uh, causes us, enables us to Renew our strength and mount up as with eagles' wings. Why? Because we can see the dazzling beauty and help of the Lord's presence here and coming. We have something in the scales, okay? Death makes his sovereign boast. It puts his heavy, bony hand on the scales of our hearts. It did. The death of our Rebecca has been a crushing trouble. So the poet George Herbert wrote a poem. I think I have it up here to remind Christians of the weight of God's glory against the thin and hollow boasting of death or the grim grim reaper. So this is a dialogue between death, the grim reaper, the serpent, and the Christian. It's kind of ancient language. Bear with me here. Christian says to him in the conflict, in the debate, in the fight, Christian says, alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Right? He knows the Bible. Going to battle here, right? Death. Alas, poor mortal. Void of story. You ain't got got any story. You ain't got any story. It's not really happening with you. You're not really saved. Yeah, it didn't really happen. You don't got any story. Go rest a while. Um, It wasn't rest, what was it? Go spell. (laughs) Okay. Go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Deal with him, apples. I've killed your king. Who's powerful here? Who's sovereign here? Christian, poor death. And who was hurt 
who was really hurt thereby. Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. You're accursed. Death. All right. They're in the ring. All right. Death says, let losers talk. This is the way troubles come to you, right? Let losers talk, yet thou, you shall die. You shall die. These arms will crush you. Right? It's the favorite line, the favorite part of it right here. Christian says, all right then, spare not. Do your worst. Don't hold back. Give me everything you got. Spare not. Do thy worst. I shall one day be better than before. And you, thou so much worse that thou shall be no more. You're going to be in the lake of fire, my friend, and be no more. Now, this is, uh, this is uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. These are not, you know, this is spiritual warfare going on here. I know this. I've had this fight. I've been in the ring with this one, and many of you have as well. When I read that last line, spare not, do your worst. I shall be one day better than before, and you, you're much more the worst. You shall be no more. The eternal weight of God's glory filled up the good side of the scale, and the trouble of death began to lose its sting. I might read, read Paul. Oh, death, where is thy sting? I'm saying, I can tell you it's sting. All right. So but he, Paul is not denying the sting of it, the mountains, the tsunamis, the volcanoes. He's saying with the gospel, he's saying with the eternal weight of God's glory, that sting loses its power. And I'm, I'm feeling it's getting lighter. It's thinner. Thinner. Paul, speaking of his trouble, says this. This is where I brought the New Testament truth into overlaid it over this song. Paul says, our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Every word David's doing. Producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. How could anyone call Paul's troubles light? Have you know anything about his life? Beatings with rods? Floggings with a Roman uh, flog? Flogging? 39 stripes? How many times? Three times, I think? Five times? Something like that. Stonings, not cannabis, rocks, rocks, <laughs> right, right, stone, heavy rocks. I mean, you hit me with a, you hit me with a pedal, pebble, and I'm done. Rocks, okay. In and of themselves, they are mountainous. In it, I don't, don't minimize the metaphors, the, the pain in someone's life. In and of themselves, their troubles, they are mountainous, tsunamis towering over our frailty. But compared, beloved, to the eternal weight of God's glory, they have no weight, no power to contest the power and love of God our Father, which he has for his own. This is how David faced Goliath. He knew in his mind and heart that compared to God, Goliath was no bigger than a flea. That's being generous. He wasn't all that intimidated. Last thing here, thank you for bearing with a guy who hadn't preached in a long time. Look, finally, how do we lay hold of this eternal weight of glory? And the answer is by faith. But there's a lot of substance to this thing, believing, trusting, adoring, 
prizing, praising, honoring things we do with our heart. By faith, believing, we pull ourselves up to the banquet table of his grace, love, and power, and we find ourselves dazzled by its vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free, it's not him, supplied. It's there. So attracted to it, it's me, so compelled by it, I have no place to turn about you, so compelled by it, see, see, it has to be a hunger, right? And you can't get the hunger without having something being withheld. Right? Uh, so compelled by it, we eat free, freely from it. So Jeremiah, Je- Jeremiah says this word. Jeremiah says, when your words were found, he says, I ate them. It's a meal on a banquet table. I ate them. And they became a joy to my uh, heart and the delight in my soul. Uh, the first time I preached that over at Hope, I said, what was the, he didn't actually eat them, the book. You know, he didn't eat the paper, the vellum. Um, Laura Augustine came to me and said, well, I think if anyone would have eaten it, it would have been, it would have been Jeremiah. <laughs> so, okay, I won't say that again. Maybe he ate them. I don't, it's okay by me. And, <clears throat> gosh, here I am wandering around. Um, he says, uh, they became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I've been called by your name. There's the truth. There's the weight. And that will lighten the load. So is the word of God's promise your food, your banquet table, your meal? Of course, as Jean Valjean was caught, <laughs> you know, that very night, the gendarmes found a mountain in the woods something. He was caught with the stolen silverware taken to the priest's home by the police. All they needed was the priest to identify the, th- the uh, thief. Press charges, you know. But something amazing happened. Something shocking happened. Instead of the priest doing that, the priest tells the police that he had given the silverware to the ex-con earlier. Now, you've read the story, and you don't remember that happening. Don't you remember, he said, this is not my house. I don't own this stuff. This is Christ's house. So then the priest goes over to another uh, cabinet. I don't know what was inside. And on top of it were two large uh, solid silver candlesticks. He picks them up. He brings them over to Valjean. He says, my brother, you forgot these. My brother, you forgot these. And he, then he puts them in his hand, in Valjean's hands. Valjean's troubles, his rage, his vow of vengeance, his sin against love was met that night with a love and grace unimaginable to him. A way of a glory of God he had never, ever considered before. Couldn't imagine someone loving another person like that with that grace and mercy. He said that it slayed, he later on said it slayed him. It, it, it killed him. <laughs> it slayed him. You have to be born again, right? It killed the old man. It killed him. 
It opened up his soul to the grace of God's wonder and forgiveness. He found the banquet table of God's eternal weight of glory. His life would never be the same. Now motivated by uh, love and not hate, he later said of the priest, and this was my favorite line at the end of that book, and an admonition to me, he said, the priest didn't merely study God. This, This is coming from a guy who doesn't know anything about the faith at the time. The priest didn't merely study God. He was dazzled by God. He was dazzled by God, right? It's not enough to know about him. You you must know about him. Don't misunderstand me. It's not enough to know about him and even to know that there's a banquet table prepared for you in the presence of your enemies and troubles. You have to eat from it. You got to eat from it. What do you do with your troubles, all right? Have you run to the Lord and found him to be your refuge and strength? Are you dazzled by the promise of his faithful, irrevocable, unassailable promise to be present in your life as your savior and keeper? You see these things on that table. I don't know. How can you not be dazzled by it? And that's just what what you see at the moment. It's vast, unmeasured. It's eternal weight of glory. It's infinite. Deep cause to deep, we said earlier. No matter how mountainous your troubles are, are deep the seas from the tsunami. Compared to the ocean of God's mercy and power, they amount only to a piece of lint. The depth of your struggle or trouble is answerable by the depth of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is vast, and it is deeper, deeper than the deepest sea, right? No matter what you have done, no matter who you have become, God is a refuge and strength, and he holds out his arms and says, come home to something better. David said, if thine, O Lord, were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? The answer is rhetorical, no one, not me, not you, not us. But there is forgiveness with thee that you may be feared, respected, honored, worshipped, trusted, adored, at peace. He is so glorious that he has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no, no more. Hear the gospel. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Put that over there when the serpent comes and wants to do battle with you. Will you run to Jesus? It's where it is. Father, we're, we're grateful for your word. Your son Jesus said, man doesn't live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father. Lord, by your spirit, we see the uh, beauty, we see the banquet table before us, and it, it is sparkling and dazzling. It's so radiant with light against the darkness of life without you, separated from you, uh, banished from you. So uh, give us that faith and open our minds and hearts to run to you and seek you. And find you and believe in you as you are, not as we might imagine you, but as you are. 
And I ask that for your continued glory, because, man, that is the best thing out, out there. And for the joy of my friends, in his name I pray. Amen.